So there seems to be an emphasis on birthdays. Paul has a birthday every week. I noticed that. (laughs) If he's not careful, he's going to be 21 pretty soon. So I was driving this morning, and I happened upon a young man who was who was walking. He was actually uh, he was jogging and walking at the same time. He was jogging between I think it was hydro poles, and then the next set he would walk, and then he would jog, and then he would walk. So he was alternating between hydro poles. So he said. Uh, so I stopped to say hi. He said, "This is my birthday." He said, this is my birthday. I said, oh, is it today? It's your birthday. I said, how old are you today? And he said, 71. Mm-hmm. 71. And, and jogging and alternating between hydropoles. So isn't that great? Gary, how about you? Are you you're not 71. <laughs> now, do we need to do a little confession now? <laughs> now we have to do another confession. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get Tina to work on you this week. Now, over the past uh, couple of weeks, three weeks, I guess we have, we've been discussing the subject of resting place, the resting place for faith. And we know the resting place for faith is the Word of God, the power of God. And our faith is intended to rest on His Word. So if we would have greater faith, if there would be a need for greater faith, then there must be a greater level of receptivity to his word. The more we receive his word, the greater our faith will be. The correlation is biblical and scriptural. Therefore, there must be and should be a greater devotion, a greater deep heart desire for revelation of his word. Because faith is not something that we summon. It's not something that we work up. It's not something that we endeavor to do or to employ. It is a gift that comes as a consequence of His Word. In the absence of a revelation of the Word of God, and I mean a revelation to the Spirit, not just to the mind, but to the Spirit, then there will not be a great faith. So that's been our emphasis, and I'll spend this morning on this topic, and then probably next week we will move on to Uh, My wife told me this morning that next Sunday is Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And we have a great deal to be thankful for. So I'm beginning with you this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you'd like to read with me or if you have your Bible and would like to open it there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll begin at verse number 1. Let me just say something before I do that. Before I read from that area of Scripture. I wanted to share something that was an experience uh, of mine early on at the age of about 26. That would just be, no, I better be careful. I'll be doing the same as I'm advocating Gary to do (laughs) a few years ago. And what began to happen as I was coming in the process of coming back into a right relationship with Jesus after many years in the wilderness and I was a young man, 26 years old. I can't believe how young that is now. What began to happen because there was this quest for truth. I wanted to know what the truth was. As I said, I don't really matter. It doesn't matter what it is. I want to know what it is. If, um, if the scripture is not inspired, divinely inspired, I went through all these different areas. 
If God does not exist, I, had, I was open to all these different things. I was kind of skeptical at the time, but I wanted to know what the truth was, and I was committed to believe it uh, to, the, to, to the extent that I could, I could be persuaded of its accuracy and, and reality. I was committed to believe it. So one of the things that began to happen as I finally began to open the pages of Scripture, kind of as a last resort, coming back again and opening the pages of Scripture, I began in the Gospel of Matthew. And I read through and came to the Sermon on the Mount, which was perfect, just perfect. I didn't know how perfect it would be, but it was perfect. Sermon on the Mount. And I've shared this with you before. And then the Word began to open up. It was, I said to someone, even at the time, I remember being asked the question, uh, what happened to you? I mean, what, what in the world happened to you? Because it was really dramatic. As time goes on, sometimes people uh, forget how um, much of a miraculous transformation that was. But I do not forget, and my wife does not forget. <laughs> Although the world would forget, there are two of us that will not, never forget. And, and so I said, well, it was as if a light turned on. It was as if a light turned on. And, you know, I said, picture yourself as reading something. You can't really see uh, clearly what you're reading. And someone comes behind and turns a light on that's behind you, just turns that light on. And now all of a sudden, what you are vaguely trying to understand now becomes clear and you're able to see and you read this. And I said, it was like that. Only this is an understanding began to come in terms of what I was reading. And the power of it began to grip me. And as the power began to grip me, I found that things began to change in my life and I began to naturally do things that before I was loath to do, now I wanted to do. And the idea we used to, I hadn't intended to go quite this far on this, but I think I'll just explore this a little further with you. One of the things we used to delight in doing after leaving our favorite place of... Uh, what should I call it? A, a watering hole? Would that do you understand what I mean by a watering hole? So when we would leave that on a Saturday night, and uh, we would uh, stagger across the parking lot, and drive home, and arrest other people for doing the same thing. And one of the things we would part with is, "We'll see you in church in the morning." See you in church, and you know, very derisively, in a blasphemous way, actually. And that was the kind of lifestyle. That was the way it was. And coming from that, coming from that to actually desiring to be with the Lord's people on Sunday morning and desiring from in the heart and actually being among them and, and uh, radical, uh, phenomenal transformation. What causes that kind of change is a revelation of the Word. That's what it causes it. That's why I'm so, so passionate about the Word is because I know its power to a degree. I'd like to know more of its power. See, because there's more power in the Word than what I know or have experienced. And so <clears throat> one of the things that began to happen was as I would be meditating, and uh, even back in those times before I started reattending church, going back into fellowship with other believers or with Christians, it was a process. This, this, this began to occur over a number of months and maybe even longer than that. 
And the place I'd like to go, I'd like to go to places where there was uh, out into the nature, out into God's creation. And when I was in God's creation, I remember going up to Chippewa Falls on one occasion and just walking up by the falls. And I had a sense of fellowship and communion there that I didn't understand completely what it was. So then as I began to get into the scriptures a little bit later on, and things that would begin to open up to my thoughts. Now, I'm a little, I don't like to share this uh, too much because I don't want to convey a wrong impression that we are just led by our own thoughts. Uh, that's a very dangerous thing, and I'm not advocating that. But I'll just share with you one of the ways that I was introduced into the power and the authority of the written word was that as I was, uh, as I was meditating uh, and communing, uh, with the Lord and asking questions, then information would come to me and, and I, would, I would sense it as a revelation from him. And then it wouldn't be maybe just a few hours, a very short period of time, and I would read that exact thing as I was opening the scriptures. And this would happen repeatedly over and over and over, and I began to realize what this is. And the message I'm intended to get from this is not that I just am led by my own thoughts, but that the revelation it comes from the Word. It's in the Word. So then I began to realize that I'm not going to continue. This is not going to continue with me. Now, from now on, what's going to happen is the opening up of this truth is going to come from the Word itself first. It will be confirmed by the Word. It will come from the Word. You follow that? as a difference. There's a difference between those two things. But what it did is it, because I had intensely prayed that the Lord would show me his way and his truth and that I would obey him and I would follow him if he would open it up to me and make it clear to me that I would do that. And I believe he, that's one of the ways he chose to do that. And so I love his word. And one of the things he shared with me years ago was my function within the body of Christ primarily would be to feed his sheep. This is specifically st stated. I won't go into all the details of that experience. But he basically said, feed my sheep and I will feed you. Just like that. You feed my sheep and I will feed you. And so this is what my calling is. And this is what I will do. And this is what we will do this morning. As the Lord enables us to do this. This is what we'll do this morning. Sometimes I wrestle with uh, the idea that, well, uh, what if the sheep are not hungry? Or what if, <laughs> what if the sheep are looking for something else? Because, you know, human beings have certain things they want to hear. It says it doesn't make any difference what people want to hear. You feed them my word. You feed what I feed you. You feed them. And I'll hold you accountable if you do not. And I'll reward you effectively and sufficiently if you do. So... There's no choice but to proclaim the word. But why not? Because it is from the word that faith comes. Faith comes. The ability without faith is not possible to please God, nor can we receive any of the promises of God apart from faith. So I told you 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You found that and lost it. I have to look it up again. And when I came to you about the Apostle Paul now in writing this letter to the church in Corinth... And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. If there was anyone who could have done that, it would have been Paul. 
He said, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm going to pause here for a moment. I determined. In other words, I made a point of it. Uh, I didn't come to express to you all my learning and understanding, which he, he was a very learned man, as we know. He said, I determined to know nothing among you except this one thing, and that is Jesus. And this is not, his first name is not Jesus, last name is not Christ. That's Jesus the Anointed or Jesus the Messiah. So I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus the Messiah. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. He is the Promised One. And Him crucified. I sense this morning that we should pause here for a little bit. Him crucified. And look perhaps at the life of Jesus, at his death, his crucifixion, and look at it a little bit more basically than we normally do. See, sometimes we can go through these great profound revelations of truth and just kind of go through them. Just kind of, you know, like sometimes we have prayers that we say and we say them kind of by rote. And, but there's deep meaning here, profoundly deep meaning. This is the Word made flesh. This is the Word eternal in, in the heavens, who spoke everything that exists into existence. And the Word becoming flesh, and His name will be Jesus, Savior, because He will save His people from their sins. How will He save His people from their sins? Well, He will save His people from their sins. That involves all of us. By dying. And it will be a death of the cross. He will be put to death by the Jewish nation, also by the Romans. It's a collaborative effort, and he will be put to death, and he will be crucified, and he will die. From the very beginning, God had said in the Old Testament that apart from the shedding of blood, there will not be any forgiveness of sins. There cannot be forgiveness of sins apart from the shedding of blood. We think sometimes, we, 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 sometimes we have a notion that God is just a, you know, a very love, and, and he is. The scripture is very clear. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life, everlasting life. So God is love. But God does not forgive sin because we say we're sorry. Now, does that shock you? Sometimes we think that all we have to do is just say how sorry we are. Or, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that. I, I, I shouldn't have done that. And everything is fine. It's all washed clean because we said we were sorry. But that's not true. Now, should we say we're sorry? Yes. But the basis for the forgiveness of sin there's only one basis, there's only one foundation, there's only one solution, there's only one re reason that sins will be forgiven by God, and that is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Nothing else. And all the Old Testament sacrifices, every one of them that, in, that involved the shedding of blood, were types and illustrations that would point to the coming of the Messiah who would, be, who would die, and his death was both voluntary and inflicted upon him. Both happened. He was put to death, but he also allowed himself to be put to death. This is something that is so essential for us to, to 
uh, come to saving faith. The idea of saving faith is to put our confidence entirely in the finished work of Christ and his work on the cross for us. He died that our sins might be forgiven. Let me say, put it another way. If he had not died on the cross, if he had not made an atonement for sin, then God, holy, absolutely holy, would not forgive sins. Now, that's a, that is a profound biblical scriptural truth that sometimes we lose sight of that. and Sometimes we think that our forgiveness by God is based on our contrition. Now, contrition is important, but there's only one basis for the forgiveness of sins. So the Apostle comes... The Apostle Paul comes to Corinth and he's determined not to know anything or project any information or any kind of teaching to the people except this. I'm going to talk to you about Jesus the Messiah. I'm going to tell you who he was and uh, his pre-existence and the the circumstances surrounding his birth and how he and, and his ministry and his work among us. I'm going to show you that he is the Messiah and fulfilled all the prophecies, the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. He will come again and fulfill the ones he hasn't already fulfilled. But I want to say this to you, that he was crucified and made provision for the forgiveness of sins. Now you come to him in repentance and confidence in what he has done for you. This is what you are called to do, is to come to him Come to him in confidence that what he did, he did for you. And say, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, like the type in the Old Testament where the high priest would come in to the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and he would wear the names of the tribes of Israel upon his vesture, and he would carry those names into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And in that sense, he was what he did, the nation did in him. And it was a type and an illustration that when Jesus of Nazareth, when he died on the cross, and when he made provision for the forgiveness of sins, he in himself carried our names before God. Our sins are automatically forgiven? No, they're not automatically forgiven. But provision is made for them to be forgiven. What do I have to do? Repent. Repent. Repentance is not just saying I'm sorry. Repentance is changing, a willingness to change. And on the basis of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And this is what Paul would preach when he came to Corinth. And he said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. There was something in Paul's physical. I won't get into this in any depth this morning with you. Uh, There was something in the Apostle Paul's uh, circumstances that was tremendously troubling to him, and it would have been troubling to those who saw him. Exactly, there's some some degree of mystery on all of this as to exactly what that was. He referred to a thorn in the flesh. He referred to kinds of tribulations, all kinds of things like that, and difficulties that he encountered. So he said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. I didn't come to you with eloquence. 
He said, but I came to you in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that when the Apostle Paul came, he was not alone. When the Apostle Paul came and preached and ministered among them, if, you looked, if we looked at him, we would not be impressed physically by what we saw. If we listened to him, it wasn't the same as Apollos coming in. But what we would immediately realize is that he's not alone. He is accompanied by the Spirit of God. And you would see, as as he said, I came to you in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And as Luke writes the record of the Acts of the Apostles and the ministry of Paul, we see all of these examples of the miraculous, powerful manifestation, the power of God, the Spirit of God, manifested in and through the ministry of Paul. But he said, the reason for this this comes, brings me to verse 5. He said, all of this, I came to you in this way so that your faith, your confidence, would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that's our topic. The resting place for faith is the manifestation of the word and power of God. And that is the ministry of the Apostle Paul. I'm going to share something with you this morning. Actually, I'm going to read something to you, and I uh, will violate one of the cardinal rules of reading, but I'm going to because I feel I should. And I'm going to read something to you that was given to me many years ago. I won't tell you exactly how many, but I wrote this a number of years ago, and it relates to this topic that we're on of the resting place for faith. And let me read this to you and then we'll, we'll have a word of prayer together. And we'll pause this topic after this morning. It says, The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not provided with tanks and guns with which to subdue the enemy. Second Corinthians says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to, to demolish strongholds. We're going to talk about the manifestation now of the power of God, the manifestation of the Spirit of God, and our faith is to rest here on this. Not in an individual, not in some preacher, not in some author, not in your favorite expositor, none of those people. Our faith is to rest on the Word of God, the power of God, the Spirit of God. Jeremiah chapter 5, it says, The prophets are but wind, and the Word is not in them. Let what they say be done to them. Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty says. Because the people have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth a fire and these people the wood it consumes. This was the word of the Lord to Jeremiah. It says this scripture is a very graphic metaphor. The words that Jeremiah spoke consumed the adversaries or the false prophets as fire consumes wood. If Jeremiah had followed the fears of his flesh, the opposition would have consumed him. His name would have been forgotten. Or worse, remembered for dishonor. Can you think of anyone now in the Old Testament litany of famous individuals who followed the dictates of his flesh instead of following the Word of God? One that comes to mind immediately, there are many, but one that comes to mind immediately is Saul, King 
first king of Israel. You know, he, had, he, he, had, he, he came into the wonderful experience of being led of the Spirit. The Spirit manifested through him in miraculous ways. He prophesied. He was anointed as king and had the anointing of king. And yet whenever there was a challenge between following the word of God or following the dictates of his own flesh, he resorted to his own flesh. And so his name lives in dishonor. His name lives in dishonor for that. Mark chapter 11. I'm going to bring you, all of us now, to a portion of scripture that is very, very challenging. It says, The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now this event occurred on Monday morning, the day after Palm Sunday, during the week of the crucifixion. Fig trees, like our apple trees, ripen at varying times. The leaves and the figs usually came at the same time. And even though the general time of figs had not yet come, the appearance of abundant leaves promised also fruit. Time is short now, and Jesus is much more interested in teaching the disciples than he was in figs. But with this in mind, he spoke to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Verses 15 to 19 tell us what happened in Jerusalem that day and his return that evening to Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now I'll come to verse 20 of that chapter. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots, the one Jesus had spoken to the day before. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Some manuscripts at this point say, Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. This is a very challenging passage. And I'm sure many of us have struggled a little bit with this passage over the years. What does this mean? What is this? This seems impossible. It says, The following morning on Tuesday, as Jesus and the disciples were walking to Jerusalem, they saw the same fig tree. It was withered from the roots. And Peter remembered it had only been 24 hours since Jesus had spoken to it. This is the power, authority of the Word of God. That's what that is. This is the authority of the kingdom of heaven, which is manifested by speech. Verse 22 is translated in several ways, which indicates the challenge the text presents. Here is verse 22 in three more translations, and I won't read all these translations, but I have three different translations, and some of these translations say, have faith in God, have faith in God. But others of the translations say it like this, have the faith in God of God. There's a difference between those two things. Have faith in God. Okay, that's, we, yeah, I understand that. But what about this, have faith of God? What, what is this? What is this? 
Now, in Young's translation, you'll find it this way, which is a very literal translation, Young's translation. As you know, it's just a word-for-word literal translation. And it translates, it have faith of God. Now, Jesus did not say to Peter, I did this because I am the Son of God. He immediately recognizes a teachable moment and directs Peter and the others to the kind of faith. And this is what we'll emphasize now. is a kind of faith. Faith comes by hearing God's word. But there's different levels of faith. You, we can grow in faith. Our faith is intended to grow in advance. There's great faith, there's little faith. There's a kind of faith. And Jesus is teaching about a kind of faith necessary to speaking the authority of the kingdom of God. It is essential to have faith in God. But this is not exactly what Jesus is saying. The literal words which tend to boggle our minds and tempt us to lighten up on the translation. Imagine yourself as a translator and you come to this and you say, have faith of God. It's just, oh, how can I say that? It's easier to say, have faith in God. This is the kind of confidence that God has. This is the faith of God. This is the kind of confidence that God has. When God speaks, he does not wonder if or when or how it will happen. God knows. God is supremely confident. His confidence, however, is founded upon his infinite knowledge and wisdom. It is this dimension that Jesus is bringing before his disciples and through them before us also. How, we might ask, how is it possible for infinite men to experience this kind of faith? Is this possible at all? And how is this possible for a, did I say infinite, for a finite man? Misspoke. How is it possible for a finite man to experience this kind of faith? That's a good question. Some would say it's not possible at all. I want to be and desire to be and need to be as biblical as, as possible, as scriptural as possible. Must be as scriptural as possible. Whether I'm experiencing that in my life at this moment or not is not the most important thing. The most important thing is to be as scriptural as possible. Not to use my present experience and overlay it over the word and say the word must mean this because my experience doesn't attain this level, therefore it doesn't mean this. No, no. The word means what it says. And when Jesus said, feed my sheep, he didn't say, feed them your experience. He says, feed them my word. That's what he says. So let me say this again. God is supremely confident. His confidence, however, is founded upon his infinite knowledge and wisdom. It is this dimension that Jesus is bringing before his disciples and through them before us also. So how is it possible for a finite man to experience this kind of faith? There can only be one answer. And here's the answer. By standing in the counsel of the Lord and listening to his words. By being introduced by the Spirit of God to the things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard. That's the only way. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, however, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared 
for those who love him. But, and here's the part, and this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 64. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. So, this idea, then the things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, these things, the things that the human mind is incapable of conceiving of, God has revealed those things to those who love him. God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And Jesus continued to present this teaching in Mark eleven twenty three. 23. Hear the words of Jesus. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. But we just can't force ourselves, make ourselves believe these kinds of things. The belief is a uh, result of something else. And that's something else. Let me go back and reread this. That something else is this. Standing in the counsel of the Lord and listening to his words. Say, is that possible? Yes. Is that possible for you, me? Yes. Yes, it is. And it's essential to the deeper life in faith. It's essential. It's absolutely essential. Our lives are not deep. With all due respect to what we're doing this morning, we're being obedient to the Lord by assembling ourselves together. But we're obedient to the Lord this morning as we assemble in the name of Jesus, His authority, not our own. There's no name that we're assembling under except His. That's, all, that's His, exclusively His. But the deeper life in faith, the intimacy with the Word of God, the life that permits us to actually be moved by His Word with great power and influence so that His Word will come to you in a during your regular routine of your week and while you're talking to someone and you don't know exactly what to say. How many of us find ourselves in those situations on a regular basis where we don't know what to say? I was often find myself there. Is it possible then to receive from the Lord specific instruction and guidance in those times, not for our glory but for His? Not to advance our cause, but his cause. And the answer to that is absolutely yes. We pray for this. Yes, we pray for it and that's good. But do we spend time standing in the counsel of the Lord and listening to his words? You say, uh, Lord, I, I've got 15 minutes now. I'm going to take in my 15 minutes that I've got free and I'm going to come and stand in your counsel. And you'll stand there for 15 minutes and hear nothing. Most likely. Because we do not dictate the terms. Very often we'll come and stand in the presence of the Lord and we may not hear from the Lord. Uh, we, may, we may not hear right away. But He will honor His Word and He will speak to your heart by His Word and by His Spirit, at His own timing. He will do that if you stand in His counsel. Sometimes he'll say us to tell us to go and do certain things first. 
I'm not going to give examples because it's not up to me to give examples. But it's not uncommon for the Spirit of the Lord to say to us, uh, you need to do this, you need to do this other. Some, sometimes there are th acts of restitution that we need to, need to make. And we don't suggest these to, to each other because these are dictated by the Spirit of the Lord. But they come from standing in His counsel. What would an act of restitution, what, what would that have to do with any of this? It just allows our heart to be in, the, in a better place before Him. And so the deeper things are by standing in the counsel of the Lord, listening to His words, by being introduced by the Spirit of God to the things that the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard. Are those things possible? And the answer is yes. And this is why Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, it will be yours. When I was 11 years old, I had an experience that stayed with me my entire life. And I won't go into detail. I'll give you this uh, uh, Reader's Digest version. My mother was very ill, and she was becoming increasingly ill over the process of s several months. She was very young. Obviously, I was 11. She was very young. You know, I was just sharing with somebody this morning and saying, you know, there were a lot of things back in that time frame where people didn't receive medical treatment like we do today. And there are so many examples of individuals who died very young from very treatable diseases and illnesses, but they didn't know what it was. And that was the case with her. I remember there was a prayer meeting at our house because mom hadn't been able to go to prayer meeting for several weeks. And I remember this is the first thing that alerted this 11-year-old boy that something was really amiss. And my grandmother was there and she was praying. And in those days when you prayed, you didn't sit down and pray. You got turned and you got on your knees and you prayed. That's what they did. My grandmother was praying. She was on her knees praying. And she was praying for my mother who was there laying on the Chesterfield. And she was praying that the Lord would leave her with us if it was his will. And I thought, what? What? What do you mean leave her with us? And it began to, to become aware of the idea that she was talking about my mother might die. What? That was my first inkling. But I'm 11, and I'm just interested in my th things that I'm doing. This very eventful day came. My dad was working away, and he needed to come up the road to our house from a distance, and Mom kept saying, David, go and look and see if your dad's coming. Go and look and see if your dad's coming. And I was reading my books, and I didn't want to be disturbed. You know, an 11-year-old boy. What happened to me had nothing to do with my virtue because I didn't have any virtue. It had nothing to do with any of that. Finally, I went out and he was coming and I said, he's coming. And he came in and my brother and, and I were out at the table waiting to have our supper. I can still see mom going from the Chesterfield to the kitchen and back to the Chesterfield and, and holding on to things as she would walk because she was determined she was making us a supper. And she did. My dad went in to talk to her, and he came out, and he was emotional. I'd never seen my dad emotional before, nor since. Never. That's the only time. 
he was emotionally, he was breaking up with emotion. And he said, these were his words, your mother wants to see you boys. Your mother wants to see you boys. And my brother and I went in then to where she was on the couch from the dining room table and she told us the Lord was going to come. She meant she was in the process of dying. She said the feeling had receded from her feet, from her fingers, and the feeling had receded and it was up where she only had feeling from her chest and up. That's what she said. She thought, felt she was dying. She said the Lord's going to come. My brother began to cry. My dad was emotional. Something happened. Now, something happened. You know, it says, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen. Where does this kind of conviction belief come from? So what happened then to me in that moment was this. She's not going to die. All you need to do is go over to that chair right there. You see that chair right there? Get over to that chair right there and get down on your knees and just ask God that she will not die. And if you do that, she will not die. And I knew that. There was no doubt about it. Absolute certainty and conviction. Absolutely knew it. But my dad is moved with emotion and believes she's about to die. And my older brother believes that she's about to die. And it had nothing to do, nothing to do with my virtue. And I've tried to understand that my entire life. And my understanding to this point in my life is that it was a gift of faith that came to the 11-year-old boy. A gift. Not earned. A gift. And the gift was an absolute conviction and knowledge. So when Jesus is talking about this mountain being removed and cast into the sea, you know that's impossible. And I'm not looking for natural explanations of all this. I'm just taking him at his word that he's talking about a level of faith that is a different level of faith. And it's similar to a, it's like a God kind of faith is what it is. Well, my mother did not die. And she lived to be 93. And she might have been in her late 30s at the time. It matters not who the person is, where or when they live is unimportant. Their age, sex, or education is not an issue. What does matter is that the speaker has no doubt in his or her heart. While this was being written, Olympic Games were proceeding. Athletes were struggling for confidence. It seems so elusive. Gold goes to the confidant. Have you noticed that? Gold goes to the confidant. I'm talking about gold medals. They go to the confidant. But this confidence does not just show up by some accident. It is developed. It is based on what the athlete knows he or she can do. And this knowledge is gained in training. In a similar yet very different way, the disciple of our Lord is called to spiritual training. I'm going to leave you with these words this morning. The disciple of our Lord is called to spiritual training. Only the revelation of the Spirit of God can remove the paralyzing doubt from our hearts. While considering these scriptures, 
it becomes increasingly clear that the primary issue is the experience of the heart or the spirit, not the words alone. Jesus said God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The realm of the Spirit of God must become more familiar to the disciple. Jesus commanded a lack of doubt in matters most of us find impossible to believe. How can I have no misgivings when commanding that which defies all that I consider normal? Well, my experience must be broadened. I must go with the Spirit and learn how to worship closer to the front in the school of divine revelation. If we wait until the world to come, who will speak in power to this one? And I might say, just as I conclude with you, that there is a dearth. There is a great, great need in the earth for this kind of speaking with power and authority that comes from the standing in the council of the Lord. And we don't see it very much. In fact, we see the opposite. And final word, this more than anything else explains the rapid deterioration of our culture into the abyss, which is happening right now. It's descending into an abyss, our culture. And everything you see around that indicates this why is all this happening? Because of the absence of this kind of fellowshipping. The realm of the Spirit of God must become more familiar to the disciple. So as we close this morning, may that be true for you and for me, that this realm would become more familiar to us. The resting place for faith is the word and power of God.